Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for ASHP's Therapeutic Thursday podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. My name is Mark Skildum. I'm a clinical pharmacy manager at United Hospital in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I will be your host for today's podcast. Joining me today is Dave Zimmerman. Dave, could you introduce yourself, please? Absolutely. Hey, everybody. I'm Dave Zimmerman. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy at Duquesne University School of Pharmacy and emergency medicine pharmacist at UPMC Mercy Hospital in uh, Pittsburgh, PA, and I'm happy to join you guys all today. Thanks, Dave. And today we're going to be talking about the return of Draperidol to the market. I know for me, this is, uh, was quite exciting news at my hospital. Uh, it's funny that uh, the drug shortage that I constantly got asked about, even when it had been off the market for multiple years with Draperidol, there seems to be a, a special place in every emergency medicine physician's heart for Draperidol. Dave, have you, did you have uh, similar experiences at your site? Yes, I did. Um, so I recall I started at uh, UPMC Mercy in um, 2013. And I, we were right at the point of where our, our Draperidol supply was dwindling. Um, I think by the following year, we were out. And literally, I would get asked every year, um, especially by the more uh, senior um, attendings and physicians that were used to it, you know, when is it coming back? Why can't we just start making it? That type of thing. So I, it is definitely uh, in, in the hearts of our EM colleagues. Yeah, for sure. It was almost like a legend sometimes, like younger, even younger EM physicians would talk about it like it was this uh, forbidden thing that they would never be able to see again. So it's exciting that it's available again. So kind of talking about why did it go through that multi-year drought where we just weren't able to get it? I know the FDA put a, a pretty strong black box warning on it. And just kind of talking through that a little bit, it was pretty interesting. You know, the FDA had approved Draperidol for use in nausea and vomiting um, at a dose of two and a half milligrams, but a lot of people were using it off-label at doses up to 10 milligrams for sedation, agitation, headache, things like that. But it's interesting that the black box warning was really based on a lot of dose, uh, a lot of cases where the dosing was actually uh, 25 to 600 milligrams, which is, is pretty wild to think about. And really that warning really surrounding uh, QTC elongation and, and the risk for torsat. So it's just interesting that uh, the FDA uh, put such a strong black box warning on something at doses that were so much higher than what was commonly being used. Yeah, no, I fully agree. And it was, um, you know, there, there's a lot of kind of, uh, you know, reanalysis of, of the uh, case reports um, and the rationale behind the FDA. I, I thought it was also, you know, I wasn't in practice at the time, but, you know, it's a coincidence that you had other agents come to market uh, like Odansetron at that same time. And as we know today, also contains, you know, a risk of QTC prolongation. But I, re- I completely agree. I think that the, the boxed warning um, in the early 2000s really, you know, kind of, you had that in the back of our mind that we, you know, we drove it all, you think, oh my God, QTC prolongation, and probably overblew it a little bit in the sense of, you know, the actual risk for it. As you mentioned, the doses, you know, that were reported were, you know, a lot uh, fold higher than, you know, standard, you know, one-time doses that we'll use in the ED, um, you know, but I completely agree. I'm, I'm thankful that, 
you know, people uh, took the time and delved into the the data to see, you know, what is the, you know, true risk. And over the years, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about it. There have been reports and evaluating that risk and really showing that it is a lot more minimal than, um, than, than what the box warning made it out to be, especially at the doses that we use in the ED, which are a lot lower. Yeah, let's let's dig into that a little bit. Some of the more recent safety literature. Um, I think one of the more interesting articles that uh, has been published recently was the one published by Gaw and colleagues in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine in 2019, titled "The Effectiveness and Safety of Drapiridol in a, in a United States Emergency Department." And this was really the experience of the providers patient, and patients at uh, Mayo Hospital in Rochester, where they really tracked the safety events for all of their patients that received droperidol over a number of years, looking at um, close to 7,000 patients, uh, or 7,000 visits by about 6,000 patients over a course of years. And they really kind of tracked those safety events. And kind of the high level was that they really didn't see much of the QTC elongation or any of the other side effects that were uh, really kind of laid out in that black box warning. So the American Academy of Emergency Medicine came out with a position statement on the safety of droperidol use in the emergency department. And it really had kind of two key recommendations. One, that there was insufficient evidence to recommend mandating electrocardiogram or telemetry for patients receiving less than two and a half milligrams. And the other was that intramuscular doses of up to 10 milligrams of droperidol appear to be safe and effective as, as other medications that are used for the sedation of agitated patients. And kind of taking that in mind, now that we've, the body of evidence has kind of grown that, you know, this is safe and effective, the black box warning may have been a bit overstated or a bit strong. Dave, how are you guys using droperidol at your site right now? Oh, that's a great question. So when I, I first saw that it was uh, back on the market, I immediately uh, emailed our, our purchaser at the hospital to see, you know, if our wholesaler had it or not. Um, and then and as always got our, um, you know, stakeholders together uh, so we can safely reintroduce uh, it to the ED and other areas of the hospital if they're interested. You know, so with that, we, we took a look at what was the you know, policy before, recommendations for use, monitoring, all that type of stuff. And then we, we basically updated ours to, you know, match the, the boxed warning, certainly, um, but then also, you know, the statement that you just said. Um, so we have a couple um, monitoring points for us when we use droperidol in the ED. Um, so, so first, we avoid if the QTC is greater than 440 uh, for males or 450 for females. Um, for single doses less than 2.5 milligrams IV, or IM doses 10 milligrams or less IM, uh, we do not uh, require um, EKG monitoring before administration. We do require um, an EKG um, if we go higher than that. So if we have doses greater than 2.5 milligrams IV at one time, or cumulative doses of more than 2.5 milligrams IV, or uh, a single dose greater than 10 milligrams IM, we require an EKG prior to you know, as always, situations, especially if you're using it for agitation, that, that might not be feasible. Um, so, you know, if the benefit outweighs the risk, we can certainly get an EKG monitoring um, within two hours. Um, and we do recommend telemetry um, for these patients. So there's, a um, again, thanks to our, our friends um, up at the, the Mayo Clinic, um, there's a, an article in AGHP that 
I'm not sure if it's in the print journal yet. It was posted online by Alicia Matson and Caitlin Brown and, and colleagues. Um, there's a really nice article that kind of goes into, you know, um, different dosing strategies, monitoring and all that for when it comes to use. So you'll see droperidol used in a couple of different areas, um, whether it's treatment for migraine as an analgesic um, for nausea, and then you have the agitation. From my experience, this is one of our agents we like for that I, I utilize in the ED for nausea. You know, if, I, if um, Odansetron or some other agents aren't effective, I, I found droperidol to be to to work. And with these, you don't need to go with your high doses. Um, typically, a dose of 1.25 milligrams um, IV or IM is um, what we'll utilize, and and I've seen that work very well. I haven't used it as much for migraine. You know, our first line agents are either prochlorperazine or metoclopramide. And then, um, you know, depending on, uh, and Ketorolac typically as well, you know, depending on response, we, we might use droperidol as a second line agent. We, we have used it in our acute agitation patients. So instead of giving haloperidol and a, and a benzodiazepine, um, just using droperidol up front. Um, for that, we will typically use doses of um, uh, five milligrams IV or IM. Um, when you, when it looks at, when you look at administration, um, IM is actually very quick, um, absorption. So it almost mimics IV. Um, so typically, you know, if, if they have an IV in, we'll, we'll go ahead and utilize that route. But if not, then we, we can give IM. And one of the nice things about troperidol compared to haloperidol is a little bit shorter acting in the sense of, you know, from a, a side effect or, you know, sedation, you, you see troperidol maybe two to three, four hours type of thing where haloperidol could be a little bit longer. So from an implementation perspective, we kind of got everybody on board. We got the product in, we educated everybody on it. Um, our, our nurses, our resident physicians who were really curious, some of the younger attendings that were, you know, training when droperidol was gone, it was unavailable. And then uh, also some of our older attendings that are, that were familiar with it. And it's been very successful. It's one that we, we have been um, utilizing. Again, it may not be our first line agent, um, you know, for everything, but we, we certainly have utilized it for, you know, refractory nausea, vomiting, refractory migraines, and, and as an option for your agitated patients. Yeah, we have had a similar experience at our site where it's not necessarily the go-to for any of these conditions, but it's a really good tool to have in the toolbox when either other things aren't working well or if a patient just has a reason that they can't have one of the other medications that maybe are a little bit higher up on the, the priority list. I'm just curious about your kind of your EKG monitoring at your site. Do you have any sort of call outs for patients that are on other QTC elongating meds? Any kind of strict guidance on if they're on medication X, Y, or Z, we don't use droperidol or mandatory monitoring for those uh, other QTC elongating meds? Yeah, great question. So, so not really anything to come from like a pop-up alert or anything like that from EHR. Um, you know, for your non, you know, I need to get the drug right away. Like your agitated patients, uh, we typically will review um, the the patient's medication list or profile to see. Um, you know, if it is a situation where you can get an EKG before, um, even if you're at the dose is lower than what's recommended, there's little harm in doing so because we're going to have to do one. You know, get one afterwards, anyways. But no, no, no specific kind of pop-ups. But if I, you know, I do see a patient that it is on, you know, has filled multiple, you know, medications that are QTC prolonging, maybe if they have electrolyte disorders, you know, if I have my labs back, especially with your nausea vomiting patients, 
you know, looking at their potassium and looking at their mag, because those are the ones you're going to find a little bit higher risk of potential QTC prolongation where you get into trouble with uh, torsades. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, no exact um, pop-ups or alerts like in our uh, EHR. That's great. One thing that I've been kind of curious about is that in the in a lot of the literature right now, it talks about doses of 10 milligrams for agitation. At our site, we've had pretty good luck with doses of, of 5 milligrams causing an adequate amount of sedation. In your experience, what are you seeing for agitation in that dosing scheme? Are you guys going to 10 right away or do you do 5 and then repeat if you need to? You know, it's a great question. And uh, I, honestly, um, we, we've been using the lower as well. Um, even in the protocol, you know, it, and in, in studies, you see greater than 10 milligrams IM, you know, up to that, you don't, you don't have to worry about an EKG. But for us, I, I completely agree. We, we've been utilizing five with great success. Um, as always with, you know, medications, you can always give more if you need to, um, can't always take it away sometimes. But yeah, no, we'll, we'll limit it to five milligrams. That also kind of helps us conserve our supply. And in typical things for like um, nausea, vomiting, we're using, you know, low doses, like your uh, 1.25 milligrams. Uh, and I've seen great success with that. Dave, what are you thinking about for the future with Traperidol? You know, it is kind of a unique medication with uh, that acts on a number of receptor sites. Do you think there's uh, any other areas that you'd like to see studied for potential use? so that we can understand a little bit more about uh, potential off-label use in the future? You know, hopefully for the future, um, we, we continue to have it. I know for us, it, it's been uh, going on shortage, so it's been shaky a little bit. So we, we have been trying to conserve our supply. But, you know, now that we have it again in practice, I, I think, you know, from a literature research perspective, you know, looking at it um, for areas that, you know, I've seen it work, you know, N of one, N of two, but, you know, in a bigger setting, Think about like your cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome patient or, um, you know, kind of other areas from there. I, I think we can continue to utilize it. As you mentioned, from a you know, receptor profile, it, it does hit a number of different areas. Um, so I think it's something we can continue to utilize. I don't have as much experience from an, a straight up analgesia. Um, that would be another tool um, to add to our arsenal, though, if it would be effective um, for certain um, pain conditions. So I'm hopeful, um, but as, uh, as always, let our you know, literature and evidence uh, guide us and go from there. Yeah, thanks, Dave. It is exciting to think about uh, potentially using it in some of those uh, hard-to-treat conditions um, in the emergency department, like uh, the hyperemesis syndrome. So just to kind of do a quick recap of our discussion today, Draperidol, it's an, an old drug that's back on the market. There are some concerns about QTC elongation, but there has been a, a fair amount of literature that's been published to show that it is safe and effective to use in uh, a number of conditions. It can be used for nausea and vomiting in doses of uh, 1.25 to 2.5 milligrams and can be used uh, for sedation, agitation, and migraine in doses of, of 5 to 10 milligrams. Dave, thanks a lot for joining me today. That's all the time we have, but I, I appreciate the time to kind of talk through it and get your perspective on it, especially uh, the information you shared about how you're handling monitoring at your site. And thank you to all the listeners. Uh, join us here every Thursday where we will talk with ASHP member content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes. 
access show notes and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official. <laughs>